0: Hey folks, this is Kevin. On this episode of Risk, you'll hear our
1: dear friend, the late Mike Cho. So, for those of you keeping score at home, (laughs) that's skinny young Asians 5, old white guys 3. That and more. But before that, be sure to check out
0: our site, Risk.com dash show.com go to the tour page and find out where risk is happening next Live, We're in Los Angeles at the Hotel Cafe on June 14th. We are back at Caveat in New York City on June 23rd. Then on July 30th, we're in Detroit. We're in Ferndale, Michigan at the Magic Bag. And then on July 31st, we're in Chicago at Lincoln Hall. Now, you can still pitch us your stories for those Detroit and Chicago shows if you go to the submissions page also at risk-show.com
2: call from mom answer it call silenced
0: instacart
3: knows nothing gets between you and the game that's why they make ordering from your couch
2: easy
0: stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game
3: You have 47 new voicemails.
0: Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply.
4: Let Tend Dental make your dream smile a reality. We offer a variety of top-rated treatments, including Invisalign aligners. And for a limited time, Tend is offering $750 off orthodontic treatments. Offer valid through January 31st, so don't wait. Visit hellotend.com slash sale. That's hellotend.com slash sale. And book your free consult today.
0: Now here's the show. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Hello, oh, kids. This is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison. This is Tokyo Groove Geoshi behind me now. And this is the fourth and final of our Asian American Lives series. We put together these four episodes, which have 20 stories in them in total, to celebrate Asian American and Pacific Islander Heritage Month. As both a celebration of just this extraordinary amount of life experience you hear here, but also a sort of a warning about the amount of bigotry and hate and violence against Asian Americans that we've seen popping up again and again and again in our streets and our communities. We've featured these clips of my conversation with Kalayan Mendoza, who you can find. At Kala Mendoza, that's K A L A M E N D O Z A on Twitter or Instagram. And he works with Nonviolent Peace Force that you can find at nonviolentpeaceforce.org training people on how to be upstanders rather than bystanders in case these sorts of violent acts occur anywhere around you, and training people just to become more involved in the community, you know, show some solidarity, because as Kala is always saying, we keep us safe. Now, our final five stories here, we're going out with a bang. In a little bit, we're going to hear from Hank Chen, a hilarious comedian and actor in Los Angeles. Before that, an extraordinary, unforgettable story by MJ Kang. But before that, a story that was shared by Mike Cho, a good friend of ours and a very beloved member of the New York City storytelling community mike passed away in 2020 on top of all the other challenges that year mike lost his battle to cancer it was very quick and surprising for a lot of us but we still have these wonderful stories that he shared not just at risk but at various storytelling shows all around and here he is at a risk live show in new york city at Caveat, just a few years ago, this is Mike Cho, with a story we call Marathon Man.
1: Uh, so, Tim and I were a Bad Match from the start. Uh, Our entire relationship consisted of me uh, taking the M 72 Crosstown bus To his apartment off Columbus Avenue where we would just sit on his couch and watch TV all day Uh, We were obsessed with trading spaces and by we I don't mean Tim and I I mean the entire nation Uh, We would order mediocre takeout and then we'd go to bed and the next day I would take the M72 Crosstown bus back to my apartment on First Avenue and that was it, that was our entire relationship. So uh, I was younger then and I was naive about relationships but after a while even I was starting to ask like, don't couples who date actually do things together? So I must have been making some noises about this because uh, uh, one day Tim surprises me and says that we're going to a dinner party at his friend Harry's house. And Harry's this uh, older gentleman who lives a few blocks up from Tim. Uh, He's about 10 years older than Tim, who is already about 10 years older than I am and uh, we get to the party, and I'm very nervous about making a good first impression. This is the first time I'm meeting any of Tim's friends. So of course, the very first thing I do is I spill a full glass of red wine while trying to cut a piece of hard cheese. (laughs) And immediately around me, all of these, like, thousand hands appear with all these napkins and towels, and they clean up the mess, and I hear somebody Telling me that uh, Harry's been drinking for hours And he's probably not even going to remember Any of this in the morning uh, So seated around the table Is another couple They were the owners of the thousand hands That came out to clean up the mess uh, This other couple who like Tim and I Consist of an older white guy And a younger Asian guy And in the kitchen There is another young Asian guy Who is cooking dinner And dinner is Coco which is a French dish, and that uh, briefly confuses uh, Harry and the other white guys around the table <laughs> because van is a French dish and the chef is Asian. Oh, but uh, you know f- um, Vietnam was a French colony for many years, so that checks out. Oh, but the chef, is, uh, he's not Vietnamese, he's from the Philippines. Oh, but it's all the same general area, isn't it? All of those third world countries in Southeast Asia. Are the Philippines a third world country? Really? Electricity and running water, really? Uh, The last two guests arrive while we're eating uh, dinner. Uh, First there's Aaron, who uh, is another young Asian guy who happens to be Tim's uh, ex before he dated me. And yeah, I've stayed friends with exes in the past. I don't really think that's weird or a big deal. And the last guest is uh, one more young Asian guy who is this actor-comedian who is just stopping in in between shows. So for those of you keeping score at home,
2: that's skinny young
1: Asians, five, old white guys, three. So we finish eating dinner and Harry clears the table and he puts on some music and immediately the Asian guys at the table, they just start screaming and they get up and they start dancing and it's just like so instantaneous but like looking back I totally get it, you know, this was the year of uh, Beyonce's first uh, solo album. And, you know, people were still rocking out to uh, Christina Aguilera's uh, Stripped CD. You know, that's the one that had Fighter and Dirty with the two Rs.
2: <laughs>
1: so I'm sitting at, I'm still sitting at the table, just like watching them get up and dance. And like, I don't, I'm not joining them. Cause like, I'm, I'm, I'm not the dance gay, you know?
2: <laughs> like
1: I've tried, it's just, it's just not me. So I'm just still sitting at the dining table, which is, like, off to the side of the room, just watching this, like, impromptu dance floor popping up in this little open area in front of the, the entryway to the kitchen, and just watching, you know, people, like, doing their, their spins and, and voguing and, like, taking turns doing, like, these runway walks and these crazy death drops, and... Um, I'm sitting there at the table watching this and I happen to look over and I notice that the three white guys have retired to a couch behind me on the other side of the room and they're sitting there and they're just watching the show. And Harry whispers something to Tim behind his hand and Tim laughs and whispers something back and they're just sitting there and watching the show. And it's at that moment that i realized that this party this party is not a party for everybody here in this room this party is for the three white guys back there on the couch and all the rest of us we're just the entertainment so when your relationship exists in as much isolation as tim's and mine did you know it just exists like completely out of context with the rest of the world and you don't really know how you fit into that other person's life, and you don't really know how that how the other person fits into yours. But sitting there, seeing Tim on the couch, just watching the show, it's the first time I realized that I'm not even a human being. I'm just the next one on the list. So later that night at Tim's, I'm trying to explain to him in my limited emotional vocabulary, like, everything that was wrong with the party. I'm um, trying to explain to him about uh, exoticism and orientalism and racial fetishism and, and also about uh, objectification and disposability. And I'm just not getting through to him. And every word I say, I'm just like digging myself deeper into this, this hole of, of whiny and needy. And Tim, he just kind of rolls his eyes like he's heard it all before from, uh, from, uh, from people who are smarter and more eloquent than I am. He's just rolling his eyes like, here we go again. But he finally gives one of those, I'm sorry if you were offended, that was not my intention, apologies. And uh, all of these isms that I've been describing, he says, that's not him, that's not who he is. And at the time, that was enough for me just to hear him say that, you know, cause I was naive about relationships. But as naive as I was about relationships, I knew that relationships are supposed to be about common life goals and shared experiences. But sometimes relationships are also about this person is looking at me and nobody else is looking at me. And what if nobody ever looks at me again? So the weeks go by and summer turns to fall. And one night over mediocre takeout, I'm telling Tim about something that happened to me in fall of the previous year when I was still brand new to the city, that there was this one Sunday morning where I woke up to hear this huge crowd right outside my window, like so loud, they could have been inside the apartment itself. And I looked outside and I just see these throngs of people lining the streets like, like for a parade and they all have these signs and these balloons and these plastic horns, and it takes me a couple minutes to realize that today's the day of the New York City Marathon, and that it's going to be passing directly under my window. And I spend most of the rest of the day just sitting at the window, watching this endless stream of runners passing underneath my window, and just watching all of these people just cheering for their friends, and their coworkers, and their families, and just for complete strangers. And it was such a rare moment of community and togetherness in a city that to me had felt so cold and indifferent up to that point. And I could only imagine what it would feel like to be surrounded by all of these cheers, like the city itself was rising up and saying, you know, you can do this. I believe in you. You belong here. So I asked Tim, I tell Tim all of this, and I asked him, I asked him, if I started right now. And if I trained and practiced really hard, did he think that maybe one day I would be able to run the marathon? And I asked him that, and I so need him to answer, like, yes, of course you can do this. I will help you, I will cheer for you, I will be waiting for you at the finish line. You can do this, I believe in you, you belong here. But Tim, he just laughs out loud, and he says, you are, by far the laziest person I have ever met in my life. Like, you won't even get up off the couch. How are you ever going to run a marathon? Well, in 2010, I ran my first New York City Marathon. Uh, took. Thank you. Uh, it took a, a year of training and support of all my friends who, like, didn't even really understand what I was doing, but they encouraged me anyway. And you know, they were people that, you know, to, to supported me and they they were cheering for me along the way. And like, I could I saw them cheering for me. And like, even if I couldn't see them, I still felt like, you know, the city like I had imagined that the spirit of the city was like lifting me up. And, you know, I was connecting with all of these strangers who were somehow able to connect with me, who were able to spot me out, out of a crowd of, you know, the, the one anonymous runner out of 55,000. Just like being able to connect with me in a way that years ago two people couldn't even connect when they were sitting on the same couch together. And I saw the same thing when I ran my second marathon in 2014. And <laughs> And my third one in 2017. And the one person I never saw in any of this was Tim, who will... (laughs) Tim, who will never hear about any of this because he doesn't deserve to. because, Because fuck that guy.
5: Selling a little or a lot to support your success every step of the way. Because businesses that grow grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at Shopify.com slash Odyssey Podcast. All lowercase. Go to Shopify.com slash Odyssey Podcast now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash Odyssey Podcast.
0: So I'm a father of what? I gotta find a babysitter.
6: I was walking my hometown of Toronto, Canada. Toronto the good. I walked along Avenue Road to Harvard Street, near the University of Toronto. I wore my black army boots and thin cotton dress. It was nighttime in the summer. I loved the air. How light it feels once the sun says good night. That's when I was grabbed from behind. The air became static. The shock of being grabbed took the wind away. I heard him grunt. It was deep yet sharp with an element of surprise. The male stranger grabbed my breasts and then put his arms around my waist, his hands on my stomach. I sucked in my tummy. Even in that moment, I felt pressure to be thin. I felt my dress rising up and I held onto it to protect myself he stopped lifting the fabric. Instead, he held on to me tightly. I could tell he wasn't tall because his face was against my ear. His breathing was shallow. It came from his open mouth. It was so close to me, it made me feel nauseated. He was determined to do something I didn't want to find out, but I was stuck, unable to move, unable to free myself. He started pulling me back, dragging me to somewhere I didn't want to go to. I needed to do something, so I became as heavy as possible, as if I were dead. And I screamed. Standing ahead of me was someone at a traffic light. It was a quarter of a block away. I saw him turn towards me, towards us. I screamed again. Please see me, see us. Please stop this from getting worse. I wanted to say. I suddenly fell to the ground. I gasped. Was I free? Was I no longer worth the trouble? I stayed there for a moment on the ground, unsure if I should move. There was dirt on my hands, and the little beads of garbage felt gross as if I were dirty. Stained. Marked. I rubbed my hands against my dress, got myself up, and saw the person waiting at the lights. Please stay there, I hoped. I thought, if I could run to him, I'll be safe. Everything might return to normal. But I turned backwards, towards where I thought the person who had grabbed me would be. I only saw the back of him. He has short, dark hair, and was wearing a White long-sleeve shirt and dark pants. His shoes weren't dress shoes, but I couldn't tell what kind they were. He snuck into the alley. I hadn't noticed the alley before. I must have passed it when I was walking. Was that where he emerged from? Had he been waiting and I, unfortunately, was picked as his victim? Was he planning to drag me there? What more was he going to do? I didn't want to think of it. I needed to go. I ran toward the person at the traffic lights. The quarter of a block felt so long. My legs felt heavy and uncoordinated as if I were running for the first time, but I wanted, I needed to touch safety. Please be there for me, I thought. I had never before in my life needed someone to stay. When I reached the lights, it had just changed, but he was still there. This person who had heard me scream. He was a young man of about 20, my age then. He wore a light blue button-down shirt, jeans, and his short blonde hair was very neat, as if he just had a haircut. He had his hands in his pockets. He was looking towards me, but not at me, and then I caught his eyes. He looked at me, puzzled. I saw his mouth open slightly, and I waited for him to say something, anything. But then he turned and looked straight ahead. I stared at him, waiting. Hoping for him to say anything to me. Silence. The air felt heavy again. We stood there at the lights only a few feet apart. He was in the center of the sidewalk, ready to cross. I was just to the left of him, staring at him. Say something. Anything, please. I felt cold and familiar. This hadn't been the first time I'd been grabbed on the streets by a stranger. Other times I ignored it. Other times I pretended it didn't happen, but this time someone had really seen it. Please ask me if I'm okay. I'll tell you the truth. He remained silent. When the lights changed, I started running. I ran the 20 plus blocks to my apartment. I ran past Cora's Pizza, the place my middle sister and I walked to on Sunday afternoons to grab slices for lunch. I ran past Harbor Bakery, where we would share a lemon poppy seed loaf until we were too full so we brought it home to freeze. I ran past the women's bookstore where I had purchased my first copy of Our Bodies Ourselves. I ran by my father's corner store at college in Ossington, hoping he was still there. Sometimes he stayed open later during the summer months, so when the nightclubs closed, he could get a little extra bit of business from customers wanting to buy cigarettes. He was closed. I continued running until I reached my little bachelor apartment on College Street, near Dufferin Avenue, where the streetcar screeched as they turned. I ran fast as I tried to find some sort of safety because I wanted to get away from the person at the lights as much as I wanted to get away from the person who grabbed me. I couldn't count on anyone, just me, I realized then. When I came home, it was empty. The air upset me. It felt so heavy. Things were not right. The poison of the experience had followed me. How was I going to stop the poison from spreading, from becoming a part of me? I picked up the phone and called my husband, who was staying with friends in Malibu, California. I was just grabbed on the street. I repeated to him several times until he heard and understood what I was saying. But you're okay now, my husband said, because he wanted me to be okay. I don't know if I am, I replied. You're on the phone. Nothing bad happened. Listen, I need to go. I'm in the middle of a dinner party. Please stay on the phone with me. I feel so alone right now. You can always call the police, he said, before he hung up. I sat on my wooden floor near my wrought iron-framed glass coffee table and cried. If I was okay, why did I feel so defeated? I called the police and the dispatcher told me they would send someone right over. I waited, first by pacing and then by cleaning up my place. I heard the sounds of their heavy boots walking towards my front door before they knocked. I let them in, two male Toronto police officers who were much taller than me. I told them what had happened. They were concerned. I saw it on their faces, and the more concerned they got, the more I needed to downplay it. I just thought it would be best if I reported in case anything else were to happen that night, I told them, but I couldn't hide my tears. I was trying so hard to not cry that I was crying more, which only made me cry deep tears so I could barely breathe. Are you okay? One of the officers asked and I could only be honest. I wish I was. I wish this didn't affect me. No, I'm not okay. I could recommend a support group have someone call you tomorrow. No, I can't. I'm Korean and Koreans don't believe in therapy. The police officer passed me a card just in case. I wasn't going to call. I had to figure this out on my own. I knew this was going to be my burden. When the police left, I cried even more, and then I got mad at myself for crying. I hate the stereotype of a fragile, helpless, petite Asian woman. But in that moment I was. I was small, meek, and vulnerable. I thought I had trained myself to not let these things affect me. I thought I could handle this. A few months later, the police called me. They had apprehended a suspect. They asked if I could come in to identify him. I told them I couldn't because I never saw the person's face. I wish I had. I later read in the news that they had arrested someone who had raped a lot of Asian women that summer. Thankfully, I wasn't one of them, but I felt terrible for the others. And then, I soon left Toronto, because it was no longer my home.
7: Thank you so much guys. So I was, uh, I'm the oldest of two kids. It's me and my younger sister and people are actually really surprised when they hear that because usually it's the youngest one that goes into entertainment, right? The fun one. (laughs) People say that my sister and I are really alike. So people who know us, uh, one guy actually told me that my sister looks exactly like me. She has just longer hair and a smaller head. Super flattering, but I think, she, I think she's really pretty, so I'm going to take that as a compliment. Being the oldest sibling, our, our age gap is big. It's six and a half years, and also because we're different genders, oftentimes it felt like I was raised as an only child, or sometimes even a third parent. You know, I had to be the responsible one. I had to set the example. I had her back. I looked out for her. Just to give you an idea as to how big this gap was, when I entered college, she was still in sixth grade. So I felt like there were some years missing that we never really got to know each other. But as we got older, we did get close, as close as someone can be when you miss a lot of their formulative years. In spite of how much I love my sister, I always felt like there were missing members in the family, like, like there should be more of us here. I have a lot of cousins, and I loved getting together with them during the holidays because it just felt like this commotion was right. You know, I I wanted more craziness in my immediate family and I always yearned to find a way to make that happen. (laughs) One time, uh, I I overheard my parents' having sex and uh and later on in the bedroom i walked in and i and i saw my dad's used condom wrapped up in toilet paper in the wastebasket next to the bed i later also found their stash of condoms in the nightstand and i so wanted to for years to poke holes into those condoms just to sabotage them and have another sibling i never did felt wrong (laughs) Here's a tax dependent that you didn't ask for. (laughs) Everyone would have thought that he was a miracle baby, but I would have known the truth. (laughs) Whenever I was with my cousins, you know, I felt like I was part of this pack. This was my crew. And every time I got into an airplane or a car to leave, I felt this profound sadness. I wasn't the most social or popular kid growing up, and I think that's one of the reasons why I fell into the church. I mean, here was this, you know, group. We were raised religious, my family, and our youth group, this was where this ragtag group of little Asian misfits could get together We could leave our public school and our really strict upbringings behind and we could just connect and feel cool even for just a Sunday or sometimes a Friday, Saturday, Sunday because, you know, they had a lot of activities. And if I was available, I was down for all of them all weekend. I was there. Our activities were always seasonal. So in December... A Friday, we would all get together, we would do uh, hot chocolate and Christmas caroling in our white neighborhood. Our Chinese church was inside a white neighborhood, and 120 Chinese kids would go up and down these streets and ring doorbells, we would avoid all the menores, and we would <laughs> knock and we would sing to all of our white neighbors. And I, and I think, you know, looking back, it's cute and it's sweet, if not a little bizarre. And I feel like our neighbors, you know, they knew we were a Chinese church, and I think after a few Christmases, they kind of just got the hang of it and figured that it was something that they could enjoy. I remember one night my dad was driving me to this youth group, and I was 14 years old. My friend Easton was in the car, and I had just entered ninth grade, and I think I was just getting into political activism. Probably someone during lunch that day had been talking about abortion, and I decided that I was for a woman's right to choose. So I expressed my opinions in that car. My dad quickly interjected. He goes, no, Bible says you must be pro-life. I, I was like, uh, and I, I tried to maybe have a rebuttal. I was like, "Well, what do you guys think about like, you know, you know, rape and incest?" He shut the club down. He said, "Did you know that you are supposed to have older brother or sister?" What? <laughs> Sixteen years ago, mommy had an abortion, and every single day I pray to God that He forgive me for killing my child. My friend Easton's sitting in the back seat. He's not saying anything. It's super fucking <laughs> awkward. It's, it's just silence. My dad had just interjected this, like, socio political conversation between two ninth graders and made it really, really fucking personal. He was like, and if mommy not have abortion, maybe you not be here today. What an argument. Okay, I don't, I, I, so are you saying that maybe like you're, you're glad she had the abortion because now I'm here or maybe I'm being like a shitty son today and you wish she didn't have the abortion so I wouldn't be here. I, there was no time to really unpack this because the next thing I knew we were pulling up to the front of the church and it was time to go Christmas caroling. Yay. My friend Easton got out of that car, gave me a quick side hug and his ass was on fire. He left that church. I didn't see him for the rest of the night. He was done. That night was a blur, I, and I couldn't help sitting in that car feel a complete sense of loss. Like, I, I was supposed to have this older sibling. I was supposed to have this brother or sister, someone who was supposed to be there to do everything first, someone who was supposed to look out for me, someone who was supposed to have my back the way that I had my little sister's back, but I never had that for myself. And I was also really taken aback by my dad's general lack of tact. Like,
2: <laughs>
7: mommy have an abortion, so now nobody allowed to have abortion! <laughs> Okay, go have fun, Christmas Carol. Fa la 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 la, have fun, goodbye. I was numb when I stepped out of that car, my feet planted into the snow, and one of my friends came up to me and she was like, Hi Henry. And uh, it, my name is Hank, but Henry was my slave name. I was born with it, a lot of history, just leave it behind. She, uh, So she goes, Hi Henry, and she could see that something was occupying my mind, and she was like, What's wrong? And I was like, well, I'm just, I'm just thinking about my older brother. Uh, for some reason, I just assigned a gender. And she goes, oh my God, well, I, I feel like I've never met your older brother. And I said, oh, well, you know why? Because he's dead. My parents aborted him 16 years ago. He's dead. That's why I've never met him. He's not here anymore. He's dead. He's aborted. Where's the hot chocolate? Let's go sing some songs.
2: <laughs>
7: my mom had a miscarriage after I was born before she had my sister, which would explain the six and a half year age gap. And I remember that time, even though I was very little, I remember it being really difficult for the family, but at least we were able to go through it together. That night in that car, when my dad dropped that bombshell in front of my friend on my way to go Christmas caroling, I felt completely alone. And I look back humorously and in a very macabre way and I'm like, oh my God, I'm kind of surrounded by dead siblings here. So it's (laughs) aborted, me, miscarriage, my little sister to cope with this because i never talked about it with my parents ever again not really i mean i kind of inferred that you know they they were new to america they were kind of getting their foundation they were already married they had jobs but maybe they just weren't ready to have a kid i had no real outlet so i became the most staunch advocate for pro-life Rights you have ever seen in any high school. I went all out. I remember government class when I had the opportunity to give a presentation on Roe v. Wade. I contacted the Maryland Right to Life Organization, the National Right to Life Organization. I got stickers, bumper stickers, flyers, posters. I put a button on my backpack as a child, not a choice, walked around in schools with it. And I also got a uh, petition that would not allow you to have partial birth abortion. So I was going around getting students and teachers to sign this thing. And anyone who was on the fence, not a problem because I had a photograph of a partially aborted fetus to show them, just carried it around with me. (laughs) My classmates thought that I was psychotic. And this presentation, I got a fucking A. I did my research. It was beautiful, it was this big poster, a lot of photographs, and yeah, a lot of research. And I didn't stop there, I took that poster to my church, and in between sermons, I started soliciting signatures from members of the congregation, uh, getting them to sign this form. And and, and I would go into my teens group, youth group service, and I would leave this poster up, and in the middle of this poster, there was this flap that if you brought it down, there were all these photographs of dead, aborted babies. And it just stood up on its own. It was like a trifold kind of a thing, so I just left it up. About uh, a few days later, I got a call from the church. Hello? Hi, is this, is this Henry? Yeah, hi. Um, this is Pastor Tung. I think you did a great job on your school project. Thank you, thank you so much. Um, I think that there's a little bit of a, I think there's been some concern about some of the graphic content on there. You know, kids are walking by and people are eating around that time so you know maybe we uh maybe we don't have to display it I go oh okay he offered me a compromise he said that I could still solicit signatures as long as I supervised the poster and made sure that no one saw the photos of the dead babies I was totally fine with that and eventually this phase passed the pendulum swung back and I fell right back into the pro-choice category, but this was my way of coping. I took an image of someone that I so wanted to be here and I literally showed him to everybody. You were here, you matter, I miss you and I don't even know you. The ironic thing is in my childhood home we had this dining table and it seated six. And the absence of two people felt so much more real after that night with Christmas caroling. I mean, I it's sort of like Big Brother, you know, like after they start voting out house guests, like just the, the empty seats. It's awkward because two people used to be there and now they're empty and they're not. And I know with family prayer time, my dad used to have to reach across the divide and grab my hand. He had to reach over that gap and, and it finally made sense to me because there should be two other people here. It felt like it felt like untapped potential. Like, you know, Mom and Dad, you've got like two out of four kids going on here. That's like 50%. That's failing. It's an F. Totally unacceptable, (laughs) especially in an Asian household. Like, you know, my little sister, she was the first person in my immediate family that I came out to. About 10 years after the Christmas caroling incident, I was living in New York at the time. She was already in high school. I came home for the holidays. I remember I was kind of just reeling from the drama of some stupid guy and we were lying in my bed and watching episodes of Terminator, Sarah Connor Chronicles and in between episodes she sensed that something was going on so she said, hey, just so you know my friends think you're super cool. I'm like, oh, that's awesome thank you. She said, uh, you know I mean, they all think you're gay but uh, you know, that's super cool because Becca, her best friend Becca has a gay uncle and he's like her favorite uncle and he's super cool and she loves gay people. All my friends love gay people it's super cool. <laughs> And I, I was already at my private life, but I had not come out to members of my immediate family because I was scared to do that. And I thought, well, maybe this is my way in. Maybe this is my opportunity. And so I, I decided to present this situation with this guy and get our take on it. And I made sure to mask all of the pronouns. So instead of him or he, I said this person or they... And she listened intently. And I don't know why I felt like I needed advice from my six and a half years old younger sister. I just felt like maybe she had me beat when it came to the romance department. And her, her advice was good. It was some good shit. Um, and it, what was really interesting is as she was talking to me, she also masked all of those pronouns. And so I thought, well, this feels safe. And so at the end of this conversation, I said, and just so you know, all of this stuff that's going on, it's... it's um guy and she said oh okay yeah I figured as much (laughs) it was totally inconsequential and of all the times that I've had her back this was one of those times when she had mine our dining room table gets emptier and emptier my sister and I don't talk anymore Four years ago, she outed me before I was ready. And uh, I think she needed to draw the attention off of herself because my parents lost their minds and they were freaking out that she was dating this Indian guy that they hated. And so she gave them something else to freak out about. I think coming out is probably one of the harder things that a gay person has to go through. And to me, I just figured, you know, well, if... You don't want a gay son, I guess. That just means you no longer have a son, right? But, at least I have my little sister. Except she wouldn't return my phone calls. Hey, um, so I figured you're probably really busy with school and I know what's going on, but it would really be great if you could talk to me. Um, Mom and dad are kind of freaking out. I know you're kind of like at the front lines here. Please give me a call back when you get the chance. I called once, I called twice, sent texts, emails, Facebook messages. And about a month and 20 emails, calls, texts, messages later, I finally gave up. And just like the rest of my siblings, she became dead to me. Thank you very much.
0: This is Risk. This is the Embassy behind me now and we just heard from Hank Chen. Before that a story by M.J. Kang. Don't forget that the people who coach the storytellers for Risk are also teachers at our school at thestorystudio.org and I do some one-on-one training as well via my own website at kevinallison.com And so if you or anyone you know would like to share a story, we hope that you don't hold back because we have all kinds of ways we can support you in that effort. In fact, the Storytelling Resources page on our website at risk-show.com is a place where you can find all kinds of wonderful tips and tutorials for free. So don't be shy. You know, if you've lived through something... That was very emotionally loaded for you, that, that you felt had some meaningful resonance for you, well, it could very well be meaningful for others as well. Look us up at the storystudio.org or at risk show.com. Our final two stories on the episode today come to us from two very brilliant and hilarious women who are sharing brilliant but rather serious stories in this instance. In a little bit, we're going to hear from Karen Mariyama. But before that, a story that was shared out at the Risk Live show in Los Angeles by Kieran Deol. You can find her on Twitter at At shit from Kieran, and here she is now with a story we call If Justice Was Blind...
3: So I was actually up for a, a job uh, with an organization called Vice. I've been working for them, like on the internet, doing these like munchies videos. So I was up for a job with them to like be in like the Brooklyn office and be like all badass. So my friend and I were like trying to get this job because it'd be an amazing thing. Like obviously, like it's full of purpose and like, yeah, that's what this is about, right? Like that's what you want to do, like fucking shit with shit. Um, <laughs> very articulate. Um, I'm very interested in women, and I'm interested in in women's issues. That's a big thing to me. Uh, It's really important. Before I started doing stand-up, I did a documentary about women rebel soldiers in Nepal. And so a friend of mine suggested this true thing that happens here in Los Angeles. There's uh, underground karaoke hostessing bars where, like, you as an attractive young woman can submit a picture on Craigslist and get selected and then drive around in a van driven by a stranger, line up for uh, strange men in private rooms in karaoke bars and get picked out of a lineup and then be an escort slash prostitute with these dudes for money. (laughs) Any takers? That's more of like an advertisement. That's what I was going for. So me and my friend were like, yeah, this is awesome. This is like the perfect thing to look at with um, with the Vice video. Uh, And so I imagined going into it that like like women like are being judged off of the way that they look, right? Like that's the whole thing with that. You're going to go in, you're going to be picked out of a lineup. So I'm expecting that. Like that's part of it. If you're a woman and you're like alive in society today, you know that on some level you're gonna be judged by the way that you look. That goes for everyone, but like, let me just point out that in the top 10 Forbes list, okay, is uh, it's like technology, 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 and like, then it's oil, and then it's (laughs) L'Oreal. That's like number four or five on like the list of things that drive our global economy, which means that what we're interested in is like oil and things that keep the world going and also mascara. (laughs) I know that beauty is going to be a part of this. Like, I know that that's a thing. And it, like, makes me scared. It makes me, you know, the idea that you're going to be judged just on the way you look. But I'm like, fuck it. It's going to be awesome. And so we find a woman to take us underground with her. Like, we find this chick, and she's going to fucking take us with her. And she's this... Uh, porcelain looking model with like this black hair and she's she's actually pretty nice and we're picking our outfits together and this should have been a red flag because when we're picking the outfit there's two outfits and they're two like cocktail dresses and she looks at one and she's like well i think that you should go uh with that one um because it shows your boobs more there's just like more cleavage and i was like i thought you said that we're supposed to look classy and she was like. Well, um, the kind of men that would go for you, it's like probably more of like an African-American clientele or like an Arabic clientele or like even an Indian clientele. And it's just like, they probably would like it if it was like just a little more. And I I stopped her and I was like, so you're saying that ethnic men like sluttier women? And she was like, basically? She's just like this adorable kind of Betty Boop of racism. (laughs) Do you know what I mean with her hair? And she's like, "Ah, (sighs) So we get dressed up. The boobs are up to the eyeballs. And we go and our cameraman drops us off at this Denny's. Oh, because if I didn't tell you the parking lot where we're gonna be meeting this guy is right outside of a Denny's. (laughs) Classic America. (laughs) It's my dad's favorite restaurant. I don't think he would be proud. And we're walking down the street and we have these coats on and there's like, I have this watch, like an undercover watch, which like shoots undercover footage or whatever. We get picked up by this Korean man in a minivan. And this is fascinating because it's like, it's just this guy with a minivan. And now he's decided that that's a company. So I love that about the entrepreneurial spirit of America, that you can just be an immigrant who comes to this country, gets a van, fills it with slutty-looking women looking to make money, and you're just like, I'm an S corporation. <laughs> like There's something fun about that, and I appreciated the spirit of that. But we go into the first place, I forget my ID, and so we have to double back. And once we double back, we get into our car, and... Um, She's texting with our driver while we're in the car, and we're planning where we're going to meet him again at the Denny's. And she goes, this is really fucked up, and I'm really sorry, but he's saying that um, I can come back, but you can't come back. And I was like, well, what about if we like go together? She's like, it's just... And you don't deserve this because you're beautiful and like you're amazing. And like, this is some serious ignorance on these guys' parts, but um, they don't like colored girls of any kind. (laughs) (laughs) And what I appreciated was the pause just between colored girls and of any kind as if in the middle this girl expected me to be like uh, no 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 <laughs> uh, i think you no 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 nah, nah, nah. damn it damn it like is she like like what am i going to respond you know oh no i don't fall on that part of the color wheel ma'am um and it was 2015 all right i was sitting in a fucking car in 2015 and My reaction was like as if I was in the 60s. I've watched the footage. It's like it just glazed over me. Like I'm like, oh yeah, color girls of any kind. Like it didn't bother me. And I think it's because it takes a second for like the shock of that to set in. It just takes a second for you to even realize that something shitty is happening to you. I don't know if you've ever had that experience. You're like, oh, this is like one of those moments that people talk about where like this thing is like happening to your face. And it was a couple of minutes later and then I finally was like, you know, I wish I was more surprised, but I'm not because I feel like at every juncture of the entertainment industry in Los Angeles, there is sexism and there is racism that exists pervasively. I was like, from the diversity hires in writer's rooms to the people who are managing auditions, to the faces that you see, to the YouTube comments, just, it's at every single point. So why? would I expect the illicit prostitution escort ring to be the fucking bastion of the NAACP? It, as if I'm turning to them to be like, but these guys will have it right. We're selling pussy equal opportunity employment. You know, like that's, like, that's an insane thing for me to, to think that that would happen. And I realized it's like, I started with this stuff about beauty, because it's like, as a woman, it's like you hold your own insecurities. It's like, I'll be insecure that my eyes bug out of my head too much, or that my nose is too big for my face. These are my insecurities, but like, I've never been insecure about my skin color. I've never been insecure about being brown, and I just thought this was like a layer cake of discrimination. And I was like, these people could do better than that. You know what I mean? Like the idea that you would take like a busted looking white woman over like a mediocre brown one, I feel like is just bad math. You know, like, like stick with misogyny. Don't try to like mix it in with racism. It's like just stick with like one shitty thing. Do you know what I mean? So we all know what playing field we're on. You know, it's like, are you gonna choose like a fucking Janice Dickinson over like a mediocre Kieran Deal? Like that's that's bad logic. It's just ba- like play by rules that I get. That's that. That was my big takeaway from it. So I was like, I'm probably like 50% like woman and like I'm like 50% this and the other 50% of me is just like an entrepreneur. Cause I was like, get me back in there coach. I'll sell it, I'll sell it. You know, thinking like I would do really good. And so she did, she, to her credit, this model, she got me back in there and the driver was right. I went into, I would say 40 rooms over the course of five hours, like just in the heels and the uniform and like the whole fucking thing. And not one person picked me the entire time, which hurt. <laughs> I was like, really? It's like trying to like lift the skirt up and be like, meow, 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 which probably didn't help. <laughs> the guys probably weren't like, yeah, let's pick the one going like this. That's the fucking woman we want in our room with us. She's normal. Uh-huh. I love the way it's like the takeaways. I don't think it was her skin color, I think it was her shitty personality. Um, yeah, but I, I, and, and I, I think back on it, and it's like, it. it sometimes I get, uh, sometimes I think it's really funny, and other times I get quite angry. I get quite angry understanding that there's like, an infrastructure in place that like, we don't talk about as a culture, and that that is just a constant and pervasive thing, right? Um, and then when I get angry about it, I feel a bit like an angry Teletubby. Do you know what I mean? And I feel like it's like people see me and they're like, oh, it's cute for a while, but huh, tone it down. You know what I mean? Like, just tone it down a little, bitch. It's like seeing me angry is like seeing Zoe Deschanel angry. You know, you're like, bitch, just put on another sundress. It's, it's fine. You need a trim. Those bangs are clouding your judgment. You know, that's kind of how I feel. And I wonder if a lot of other women feel that way. It's like sometimes it's like you have this rage and you don't have this space publicly to feel like you can address it. It makes me think of justice because that's a woman and it's in a courtroom and she's blind. And sometimes I just wish that we lived in a society where it was also blind. Thank you.
8: everyone so i was at work uh, about a month ago and i was in the office at the groundlink theater and i teach improv there and so i'm sitting there and thank you uh so i'm sitting there and i was uh, having to fill out some paperwork and i overheard the girl in the office on the phone talking to a student who was starting class and didn't know who their teacher was and it was going to be me so i could hear them on speakerphone and so she's trying to describe me. Um, she's, she's short. She has dark hair. It's dark brown hair. She wears T-shirts and jeans a lot. Um, did I say she's short? Um, brown hair, blackish brown hair. And then the student goes, oh, the Asian one. Yes. Yes. And she looked at me and she went... I'm saying sorry. Uh, so I was like, no. You know, every once in a while, more than once in a while, I'm reminded that this is what I look like. I'm an Asian person that I guess doesn't sound like an Asian person. And it's kind of this thing I've kind of gotten used to because every once in a while, like that moment, I'm reminded of it. I'll go to a wedding, and someone will come up to me, and they'll look at me and go, you speak really good English. Good for you. And so I just go, mm. Uh, But I forget that I look like this And those of you listening I'm pointing to my amazingly ravishing Asian face Thank you Thank you so much Thank you But I realize that I've been feeling And this has been my whole life I don't know if you guys feel this way I feel like I am this Little like alien being That is driving this yellow robot like my eyes I'm looking through my eyes right now but I'm like that little person in men in black right remember they open up that old man's face and there's that alien going doing that that's me although I'm not dying but I feel like that and that I'm just stuck driving this this cool little Asian robot you know uh because that's what I have it's kind of like you know your first car but you can never trade it in That's what I feel like, which is fine. It's just that my life has been to convince people, okay, that's just what I happen to be, right? But I think that a lot of people, including myself when I was growing up, just assumed that I'd come out of the womb and, you know, know how to play the violin really well, just have a natural aptitude toward algebraic equations and pick up kung fu like that. But it doesn't happen that way. Uh, Honestly, you guys, I... Can barely play the piano. I still use my fingers to count when I'm balancing my checkbook. All right, and my closest thing to kung fu is that I love all those movies. All right, so I have the the movie sensibility of an 18 year old boy. That's me. But I was always trying to fight it, and I've learned how to accept it. It's just that um, lately, now because of now ethnicity is kind of cool. I thought, oh, this yellow robot's really going to help my auditioning. Uh, you guys. I'm too big to be a crazy rich Asian, okay? I'm too small to be like a Hawaiian Samoan Asian. And my eyes are too big to play a Japanese Asian. And I'm Japanese, so I'm not even Asian enough technically to play an Asian. (laughs) So what do I do, you guys? It's like, okay, all right. But you know what? I did have an audition, and this was one of my first ones. And I was like, oh, it's 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 a part. She's a Japanese woman. That's me. I'm gonna nail this. So I go in, and it's this dramatic movie of the week about the bombing of Pearl Harbor. Yeah. So it's this really dramatic scene, and they set it up and I Karen, you know, the bomb's just gone off and your face is melting off, and there's all this mayhem. And my lines were literally water. Water. And so the casting person, she stops her. She goes, okay, Karen, thank you so much. I'm going to stop you right there. Um, Let me tell you something about Asian women. They're very internal. They don't get emotional. That's what makes them interesting. Yeah, this is a white woman telling me this. And I was like, oh, my God, you racist bitch but i didn't do that i said thank you i was very internal i didn't get emotional and i guarantee you i walked out in a very uninteresting way so i went fuck maybe she's right maybe she's right maybe i am just doomed to be this kind of subservient person. I'm going to reinvent myself. But instead, when I got to college, I went, damn, they're torpedoes. I'm going to fight my Asian-ness. I'm going to just, ah, I'm going to wear overalls, which, yeah, that that makes sense. Uh, (laughs) I'm not going to hang out with Asian people. Fuck that, all right? I'm my own identity. I'm my own identity, right? I'm going to grow pot in my room. Oh, I did. Sorry. (laughs) 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 You know, I'm going to do that. And it just took me a while to get over that. I just fought it. So anyway, I came home at spring break from college. I was going to UC Santa Barbara, and I had a break. And I went to visit, well, I went home to San Diego. That's where uh, my folks live. And I was kind of reconnecting with friends. And one of my friends worked at SeaWorld. And he trained dolphins. And I, he said, you want to come and pet the dolphins i went oh my god yes who wouldn't want to pet a dolphin right and so i was uh, running a little late and i got into my car and my car was this like toyota that didn't have carpeting or radio my grandmother had one in a raffle anyway uh and the rear mirror fell off so anyway i didn't have one and so i was in a hurry but i didn't have any kind of vision in my my perimeter to see what was behind me uh, and I was in a hurry, but let me let me just backtrack a little bit at the time when I was going home SeaWorld had a very Asian theme like the ticket booths looked like pagodas, right? And they I'm saying that with a scalp. I don't mean that pagodas are wonderful And you know those those weird like statues that look like lions and Buddhas and they were everywhere, right? Because that was the the main theme and they had this attraction where there was a grotto it looked like a little Japanese grotto and it had a tank with water and it had this glass where you could go down and you could look through the tank and for money you could pay these women who were dressed like traditional Japanese pearl divers you know that from like that James Bond movie where he goes was... anyway they wear these white clothes and they they dive In the water, and they would get you a pearl or an oyster, and then you'd take it to the booth, they'd open up the oyster, and you'd get a little pearl souvenir that was from a Japanese diver. So that was the attraction. So, anyway, cut to me being late. So I'm running late, and I'm so late, and I happen to look in my passenger mirror, and there's sirens. And I'm like, fuck, fuck, he's gonna see that my rearview mirror's broken. Oh my God. So, anyway, I pull over, and this big cop. You know the kind, they have blonde hair on their arms, but it catches the sun, so their arms are really furry blonde? One of those guys. You know? And he comes up to my car, and I roll my window down manually, because again, this is a cheap car. And he peeks in, and he goes, you're going a little fast. Were you in a hurry? And I just nodded, right? And he goes, where are you headed? Sea World. Without batting an eye, he goes, you a pearl diver? And this is my defining moment. I just went, yes? <laughs> and then he goes, you like it?
2: Yes?
8: See, you can hold your breath for a long time, huh? Oh, yes. Well, you know, I've been to Japan once. Oh, yes. And I was just, my heart was beating in my throat, and he finally went, hey, little lady, you know what? I'm going to let you go, all right? But drive safe. Thank you, officer sir. <laughs> And he walked back to his car, did one of these, flashed little lights, and bowed. Wow. And I just sat in my car going.
2: Yes. <laughs> yes.) <laughs>
8: My yellow robot worked. And I went to Disneyland. And I was like, holy crap. Okay, okay, I got this. I got this. And so, you know, I I kind of after that went, okay, I'm good to go. I'm good. I'm good i'm not going to have a chip on my shoulder i'm going to accept it right i'm going to accept my yellow robot so if i go into an audition and everyone's a size zero i'm going to accept that i'm driving a yellow minivan all right i may want to upgrade i may want to put better gas in it i may want to keep it cleaner but i'm okay with it because this is what i am it's what i happen to be but that's okay so You know what, guys? If you come up to me and you start talking to me, just don't ask me what kind of sushi to order, all right? But you can ask me what the over-under is on a Charger Patriots game. (laughs) Thank you so much, you guys. (laughs)
0: all for this episode folks this is world party behind me now and we just heard from karen maruyama who you can find on twitter at karen maruyama and before that a little bit of a song by one of our heroes yoko ono and there's so many more asian american stories that have been shared on risk over the past 13 years over the past five hundred and ninety nine episodes so if you're new to the show go back the archives are just chock full of remarkable life experiences being shared
4: knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling meeting new friends or just even to master new skill
1: Well
0: folks, don't forget to look up Risk on your social media. We are at Risk Show on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And on Twitter and Instagram, I'm at the Kevin Allison. There's also a lot of discussing of the stories happening on the Risk Podcast fans discussion group on Facebook or over on Reddit. Our subreddit is Risk Podcast. Folks, today is the day. Take a risk.